If you would open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. You might notice that the lights are getting darker and darker on stage, and there's a reason for that. Because as we move along in our order of worship, we are signifying the life leaving the body of Christ. And that is what we observe this evening. We observe his death. And here in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39, we see his death, we see his crucifixion. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us this evening as we step onto holy ground. And would you impact us greatly by your truth, seal it upon our hearts. And if we leave with one thing, help us to leave with a reverent awe of Jesus and his work on behalf of his people. We ask all this in his name. Amen. To become a Navy SEAL, you have to go through an eight-month grueling process called BUDS, which is called Basic Underwater Demolition Slash Seal. And during the process of BUDS, there is the famous week called Hell Week. And there's a reason why it is named that, because it is during this week that most candidates quit. To become a Navy SEAL, you have one job, to not quit. No one is cut. No one is looked at and says, ah, we don't want you, you simply quit. And during hell week, during buds, it doesn't get harder than the nights because during the cold and wet nights is when the candidates are huddled together freezing as they're locked in arms in the water and they're just dying for the light. They're dying for morning. But yet, it feels as if it'll never arrive. We often go through those seasons of life as well, where we wonder if the light of morning will ever arrive. And it's in the darkness of those nights, whether darkness of seasons we face bodily, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, but the darkest of all seasons that ever a human being faced was here in these six hours on the cross. 
on the cross, it was night for Jesus. And it was night unlike any other. And although he was crucified during broad daylight, as we will see, darkness would sweep over the land and darkness over his soul. And it was the most intense hours of his entire life and in the life of anyone who has ever lived. And that begs begs us a question for tonight. What makes Good Friday good? When you actually think about what it is we're celebrating, what makes Good Friday good? How can there be so much horror and so much pain on this cross and yet we dare to call it good? And so if we're going to understand it and how it can be good, we need to first see what really happened and why. Look back at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who is Jesus? Jesus is God in our flesh. He is the God-man, and as the God-man, if Jesus is going to save us, then he must be rejected by God and by man. And this is what the crucifixion was. The crucifixion was a most horrendous process, and in order to understand something of what Jesus had to do in order to save his people, we need to understand what happened on the cross. After the trial of Jesus, or really the mistrial of Jesus, he would be handed over to the soldiers to prepare him for the crucifixion. As theologian Donald McLeod says this, once the condemned man was handed over, the soldiers could torture, humiliate, and violate as they pleased. And you have to remember that this is in fulfillment of Isaiah 52 verse 14, which prophesied that this suffering servant would be so marred that it would be hard to recognize if he, was even, if he was even human. And as Jesus would go through this dehumanizing process, it is certainly a physical representative of what happens in our hearts when we embrace sin. Crucifixion was so bad that the famous Roman politician Cicero says that crucifixion was the most cruel and hideous of all tortures. One commentator says that crucifixion victims were this, they were executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or on a well-trafficked road, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts. Victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. You see, the reason why we have so few references to specific crucifixions is not because they did not happen a lot, but because they wanted to be forgotten so quickly. That's how horrible of a process it was. See, because crucifixions were so horrible that if the cross lacked any theological meaning at all, and as one author says, the logical thing for early Christians would have been to glide past the passion as quickly as possible, portraying it as an unfortunate but incidental episode on the way to the resurrection. It wouldn't be something you'd want to linger on. The first phase of crucifixion would be the scourging, and here's what would happen. They would have, a, as one person says, a whip made of leather, and it would be 
uh, attached with small pieces of metal or bone fastened to the ends. And with the first strokes of the scourge, skin would be pulled away and the subcutaneous tissue exposed. As the process continued, the lacerations would begin to tear into the underlying skeletal muscles. And this would result in phenomenal pain and massive blood loss. And the idea of scourging was to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or even death. And it was common in this process, as this person goes on to say, it was common for taunting and ridicule to accompany the procedure. You see, the scourging for Jesus would have been so bad and so brutal that he would not be able to carry the beam that would be across his back as you normally would as you go to the crucifixion. But remember, he had to have a man named Simon of Cyrene, by the way, who was a Gentile, which should give us a good hope that Jesus came to save Gentiles as well. But Simon of Cyrene would have to carry Jesus' own death instrument to Golgotha. They would have stripped Jesus naked. And nakedness was obviously a universal sign of shame, but particularly a sign of shame for the Jewish people, for it would remind them of when Adam and Eve saw that they were naked and before God they were afraid. He was crowned with thorns. And they would press into his scalp this crown and ensuring more pain and significant blood flowing down his face. It would be like a boxer's cut that would just bleed profusely. In the process of Jesus' crucifixion, this would actually be true horror, not an entertainment genre. The process of this crucifixion was not something you would want to watch engagingly, but what you would want to run away from. They would begin to spit upon the king of glory. It wasn't, but a couple days before, as we saw this past Sunday, that the people were just crying out to this same king, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel, but now they spit upon him. The spittle of the Gentiles was considered to be unclean for Jewish people. Isn't this such a significant humiliation for Jesus who is the holy, holy, holy one? The crucifixion is not merely death or even death as horrible suffering, but crucifixion is meant to be shameful. It's meant to be degrading. And yet again, we need to ask the question this, what makes Good Friday good? The second phase of the crucifixion was when he would arrive at Golgotha Golgotha was a place no one ever wanted to find themselves. As one author says, Golgotha was enriched only by the blood of criminals and covered with the bones of executed rebels, criminals, poisoners, and other pieces of trash of the human race. In a cursed spot where love never rules, but where naked justice alone sits enthroned with scales and sword and from which every passerby turns with abhorrence. See, once they would arrive at Golgotha, Jesus would be nailed to the cross, and here's how it would happen. The person to be crucified would be thrown down on his back, exacerbating the pain of the wounds from the scourging already, and introducing dirt into those wounds. His hands would be tied or nailed, in the case of Jesus, to the crossbar. Nailing seems to have been preferred by the Romans, and the nails were driven into the wrist, and the feet were tied or nailed. 
Again, someone says this, in the process of the crucifixion, that passive exhalation, which we do thousands of times a day without thinking about, would become virtually impossible for someone hanging on a cross. The weight of a body hanging by its wrist would depress the muscles required for breathing out. And therefore, each exhaled breath could only be achieved by a tremendous effort. You see, what you would have to do to take every single breath on the cross is you would have to pull on the nails that held up your wrists, and you would have to push off the nails that nailed in your ankles to take one breath. And Jesus would do this for six hours. Bodily functions, as one author says, bodily functions would be uncontrolled. Insects feasting on wounds and orifices or uh, orifices, unspeakable thirst would accompany the victims, muscle cramps, bolts of pain from the severed median nerves in the wrist, scourged back, scraping against the wood beams. And all the while, as he is going through such horrible pain, all the while people would be walking by and looking at him, wagging their heads. Utter shame. Certainly the fulfillment of Psalm 22 Verse 7, where it says that they wagged their heads at me. And you have to imagine the shame, the humiliation, and the utter despising of the moment for Jesus. You would have to imagine the temptation that he must have felt like no other temptation where they said this, he saved himself, or excuse me, he saved others. Let him save himself. Imagine the weight of that. Again, one author says, for Jesus, the force of the temptation must have been almost overwhelming. He had saved others. He could save himself. He could end the agony. He could end the excruciating thirst, the awful strains on his arms, the searing pain in his lacerated back. He could silence the roaring lions and the snarling dogs. He could end his silence. He could show them who he really was, and he could let them see his glory. But then again, he couldn't. You see, we need to ask ourselves this question. If we really had iPhones back then, would we dare take a picture of this site? And with that picture, would we dare hang it up to constantly look at it? What makes Good Friday good? As he's hanging up on the cross, his charge would be inscribed on wood above him. And ironically and providentially, it said, King of the Jews. And you have to ask this question, who's behind all this mockery? Behind all this mockery is the dark Lord who has always been mocking God. He is the one who is lurking about spiritually amongst the crowd, stirring everyone up to reject Jesus. And this would be the moment when all hell has been emptied. All the forces of darkness are unleashed upon Jesus right here, right now, to keep him from saving his people. That's what's at stake. Let the pain and let the shame be so extreme for Jesus that he would just quit. If he could just quit, then Satan can still be the king of this world. But he can't do it. Jesus can't do it, not if he's going to save his people. 
the soldiers would offer Jesus wine, and the wine was a, it was a painkiller that would actually prolong death, but Jesus refused to drink the wine. Do you know why? Because he knew he had to feel it, but also because he was drinking a greater cup, the cup of God's wrath. Once again, this fulfills scripture as Psalm 69 verse 21 says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine. He was crucified between two criminals, and as Donald McLeod again says this, he identifies completely with sinners. He lets himself be treated as a sinner and dealt with as a sinner, and not only by men, but by God. John Calvin also says this, crucifying Jesus between two criminals gave him the first place as though he were the criminal leader. Again, another reformer, Martin Luther, says this. Jesus bore the person of a sinner and of a thief, and not of one, but of all sinners and thieves. Christ was to become the greatest thief, the greatest murderer, the greatest adulterer, the greatest robber, desecrator, blasphemer that has ever been anywhere in the world. That was sin transferred to Jesus Christ. And it is safe to say that there was no person who was ever more horrifying in God's eyes than Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what it means for him to become sin. He got the worst of God's wrath that could ever be poured out because he took our eternal hell in just a moment of hours. And you can't miss the irony here. Jesus is crucified on a tree And our first father, Adam, sinned at a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23 says this, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain there all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day. Now listen to this. For a hanged man, talking about on a tree, is cursed by God. All Jesus would hear All he would feel is the curse. And that's what makes the cross so excruciating. That's what in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is why, why he would sweat blood. Because ultimately, he goes to the cross as the sacrificial lamb. He is the one to take the wrath of God. You see this here in verse 33 where it says, Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. But if you notice when that darkness took place, and it says the sixth hour. Now, some of you might have a footnote in your, stu- in your Bibles here, or your study Bibles. And when you look at when the sixth hour is, it's at noon. It's at the height of the sun. And it's actually also during the Passover feast when there's a full moon. So if anything, it should very rarely be complete darkness. You see, because on the cross... When it should be completely light, God supernaturally brought darkness. And here's why he brought darkness. Because the ninth plague in Egypt, of the ten plagues, God brought darkness that could be felt. As it says in Exodus 10, verse 21-23, a darkness to be felt, pitch darkness for, for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Amos 8, 9 says this, and on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. 
He can't make this up. And I will darken the earth in broad daylight. You see, Jesus is not dying as an example. He's dying as, as a sacrifice. Donald McLeod again says this, Jesus is also engaged in a titanic spiritual struggle moment by moment. He must repel Satan's insidious suggestions. He must summon all his own strength. He must choose the pain and continue his journey into the terrifying unknown. But above all, Jesus must taste death. Not simply die, he must taste it. That's the cross for Jesus Christ. There's no more encouraging words here for Jesus. The Father is silent. All he hears are the dogs around him telling him to come down. Finally, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 1. And it would certainly be a cry that would echo in the consciences of everyone around them as they witness the creator of all of life give up his last breath. You have to ask the question of this. What kept him up there? What kept him up there? It was his love. It was his love for his people. He had to keep going if he's going to save us. And he's keep, he kept going because of love for you. He did not keep going because you had enough in you. He did not keep going because you had some potential. He did not keep going because you were a halfway sinner. He kept going because you are miserable in your sins and you needed saving. It's either him or it's you. And praise God, it's him. What makes it good Friday? What makes it good is that Jesus is so serious about forgiving you of your sins that he stayed up on that cross. And God will only pour out his wrath once. It's either on Christ or it's on us. That's why Good Friday is good. It's dark right now, but Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in your word that we would respond in running to Christ who is the only sacrifice for us so that we might have your love. But only you can work it in our hearts. Only you can press it home on our conscience. But help us to experience the freedom of what Sunday brings and the life that is in him. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.